Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to season two of the Limitless Grid Podcast, where every single week I interview an individual who dares to live life in their own terms. So super pumped about this season. I've already had the opportunity to interview some of the most incredible people, and I'm excited to share their story and their knowledge with you guys. But there are going to be some changes. So this season, I'm not just going to have one episode per week. It's going to be two episodes per week. So every Sunday... I'm going to have interviews, but every Tuesday, it's going to be 10-minute Tuesday where I will talk about a topic every week for 10 minutes. So it could be something like meditation or ways you can choose courage over fear or some week I'll interview my friend about, you know, ways one can start running for a marathon or something like that. So if you have any ideas or if there is something that you want me to talk about for 10 minutes on Tuesday, let me know and I will do my best to deliver So let me give you a little background on our guest today. Her name is Emma Slate. She was born in England and was educated in university in Cambridge and London. She had an exciting international career in finance until she was almost killed in Indonesia. After that incident, she eventually resigned from her career in finance and began traveling and exploring, doing yoga and meditation. Her interest in yoga and meditation got stronger after meeting a Buddhist Lama on her first visit to Bhutan in 2011. This led her to studying Buddhism with this Lama and eventually led her to become a Buddhist nun. In 2015, she set up the UK charity Opening Your Heart to Bhutan, which helps kids in Bhutan with education, healthcare, and other necessities. She also recently wrote an amazing book that actually changed my life, and it's called Set Free, A Life-Changing Journey from Banking to Buddhism in Bhutan. And you can purchase this book at bookdepository.com, and I'll have that on my show notes. And all the profit from this book would directly go to her charity. So guys, please purchase it. This is an incredible story, and you're actually making a difference. So without further ado, Emma Slade. Emma, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. Would you like to be called Emma or Pema? Emma's fine, yeah. Okay. What does Pema mean? Pema means lotus. Okay. Uh, So which is a a symbol of clear wisdom arising from the mud. Mm. It's the lotus flower. How did you get that name? I was given it in Bhutan by a very uh, incredible teacher of Buddhism in Bhutan, and uh, the full name is actually Pema Deki, which means blissful lotus. And that's not because I am a blissful lotus. It's to inspire me to hopefully become a blissful lotus in a long time. After reading your book, you definitely are a blissful lotus. But for people who are not familiar with your work or your life, if you want to give a little background. Okay. So in summary, I left a high-flying financial career, which had taken me around the world, including New York and Hong Kong and London. And uh, I left that uh, after I was held hostage in Indonesia, in Jakarta, as a result of being there on a business trip. And as many people may know, you know, you have some kind of seminal, difficult incident in your life, which really makes you think again. And that made me think again. 
And so uh, I left that career and traveled around the world doing a lot of yoga, really asking what it is that brings me happiness. You know, if it's not money, then what is it? And uh, eventually uh, increasing my understanding of Buddhism and then very eventually becoming a Buddhist nun. So it's quite a journey. Yeah. Wow. Um, after reading your book, one thing I realized that you're someone who is very in tune with yourself. Like even before you became a nun, you left college. And even when someone was putting a gun in your head, your mm -hmm. thought was, how is he doing? And you just had compassion for that man who was trying to kill you. Did you always have this sense of compassion and empathy for other individuals? Or is this something you have grown over time? Okay, well, firstly, I think if you are going to find your own path, you do need the courage to listen to yourself. Yeah. And uh, sometimes the hardest incidents actually can give us that courage. And no, I didn't think I, I had always been a kind person by any, by any means. Uh, but that incident did make me realize that perhaps underneath it all, I was kinder than I'd been brought to believe. You know, because I'd been told I was intelligent and, you know, uh, smart and fast and funny and I don't know what. No one had ever said I was kind. It wasn't something you'd see at first glance. So it was quite a surprise to find to me that actually, oh, down there, that maybe there's a little kind person trying to come out. And I guess that, you know, that now, you know, with writing the book and founding the charity for, for children, I'm really putting that kind person into into action now but it's still a surprise to me sometimes to be honest mm -hmm. you know and I'm not always kind I'm still human <laughs> <laughs> after reading your book I realized like even you even at being a nun you struggle being kind struggle practicing empathy so for people who are listening to this podcast right now or people who are watching it right now how can what can we do to practice more empathy you think Okay, so the human is a habitual creature, right? Yeah. And um, so whatever we practice, we're going to become proficient at. You know, if we practice anger, we're going to become very good at being angry. If we practice greed, we're going to become very good at being greedy. Qualities like compassion and empathy are no different. You know, we just gradually, gradually practice them. The, the uh, you know, and I mean, you can practice uh, first of all, compassion or kindness, you can practice very simply. You know, you can just smile at somebody. You just help your neighbor with something, you know. Just allow them to use your parking space, I don't know, when they've got lots of shopping. Very simple ways, right? So that's compassion. Now, empathy is when you, without any agenda, put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. And try to think through their eyes, right? Which doesn't mean thinking like they should do what I would do. Like if I was in their shoes, I would be doing this to my child. I'd be bringing them up this way or I'd be saying that to my boss. All right, da, 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 da. That's very different, okay? Empathy is saying let go of your own agenda. Try and think from the person's point of view, like looking out at the world from their eyes, with their vulnerabilities and their challenges. Now, how can you help them? Yeah, it doesn't mean turning them towards your agenda, okay? And that's where it's about letting go of your own ego. 
that's quite an advanced practice. So I would say, first of all, start with simple acts of kindness, get into the habit of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's already uh, freeing yourself from your own selfishness. Right. Mm -hmm. A, do that. Then B, notice how do you feel when you've done that? Yeah. Do you feel good? Do you feel like a bit more meaningful? Like you Mm -hmm. made your world a little bit more happy around you? Notice that. Notice that. And then continue developing the habit. And then gradually as you develop that habit, you can then you can begin to develop empathy. Yeah. So it's more like a conscious action. It has to be. Mm. Yeah, mind training, uh, meditation, any of these uh any of these practices, and I think the neuroscience uh will back this up, you know. Um if you're to develop these qualities of mind, there has to be an intent. You know, you have to you have to have an intent. And often that intent is going to come because you've realized that the consequences of anger are very messy. You know, they cause a lot of suffering. Actually, you feel really bad. You end up apologizing, making more mess, having a lot of regret, right? Mm-hmm. So when you realize the unsatisfactory nature of some of those other activities, then you'll develop more determination to uh, develop more peaceful ways, more kind ways. Then you do need to be have that intention. You do need to deliberately decide, okay, I'm not going that way. I'm going this way because we're such habitual creatures that if you don't make that deliberate intention, it's very easy for old habits to come back. Once you've had that deliberate intention for a while, then it becomes your habit. Yeah. Then it goes of its own accord more. But in the beginning, you you have to be quite deliberate. Oh. I want to get back to your incident in Indonesia. You said that yeah. you were an animal hunted by your own mind after the incident. And you know, I mean, reading your book, I realized you went through a lot of mental challenges. How did you start working on your mind after the incident to become, eventually become who you are today? Okay, yeah. I mean, what I suffered from this very unexpected trauma, life-threatening trauma that just came at me out of nowhere, was something called post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, because trying to integrate such a hugely traumatic unexpected incident into my previous mental stream of events it was like how do I get it to how do I get it to stay in there and fit in there and calm down and just become part of my life experience because it was so shocking and horrific you know like how do I how do I do that right and uh, so I had a very real experience of post-traumatic stress disorder and I've tried uh, in the book to show that um because I think a lot of people probably hear that phrase and don't really know what it is like. Mm-hmm. So I tried to gently show that in the book. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a recovering from the post-traumatic stress disorder in a way took a lot more time than, um, you know, the incident last for. You know, I had a traumatic incident that went on for a finite period. You can say it started here and ended here. Mm-hmm. The post-traumatic stress disorder then just took place and it was just 24-7 for just months. Wow. You know, it went on a lot longer than the incident. And I think you'll find that people who suffer from that condition would say the same. Yeah. On my own, I wasn't able to uh, recover from it. I had to have some help from experts, you know. So, um, I mean, that was interesting in its own right because I'm quite British. And so I, I don't find it very easy to say, look, I'm struggling here. And actually, you know, these constant nightmares and flashbacks 
you know, I'm not really dealing with them very well. So actually I had to, in the first instance, I had other people to help me. And then from there, then the path of the yogi came to me, you know, and doing yoga to build up trust in my body and trust in the world again, you know. Uh, but in the first instance, yeah, I had some help from other people to uh, help me get through the post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. So it was like you lost trust in the world, in that uncertainty. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because, you know, I I had gone into the financial markets following the death of my father, and I thought that was a very safe place to be, right? You know, it's like a it's like a affluent place to be. People have nice careers. They get in taxes and wear nice suits. I mean, surely that's safety right there. That's certainty and safety, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I felt I was going to somewhere where I'd be very safe, having been through the uh, emotional trauma of losing my father. So then when this very safe place turned out to be a, a place where I was so vulnerable – then I really thought, okay, now what what can I trust here in the world now? What can I trust? I can't even trust a five-star hotel room. So, you know, where am I going to be safe? And that's when I think I started to realize that, you know, uh, what I wanted to place my trust in uh, was probably other things, you know. And that's where the path of yoga and Buddhism and compassion, probably I started to feel they were the real places of clarity and safety for me in the world. Did you find out why that guy was there and why he specifically targeted you? Um, My understanding, what the police said was that he was a gambler and that he really needed money uh, for some gambling debts and that that would would have been behind why he uh, knocked on my hotel door. Wow. What were your thoughts when he was putting his gun in your head? Well, I guess I try and describe that in the book. It's, uh, you know, I try to walk people through that experience. Um, I mean, it's just overwhelming fear. I can't, I, you can't really articulate a lot of thoughts at that point, to be honest. When someone out of nowhere puts a gun to your head, honestly, you're not really thinking in long sentences. Yeah. You know, it's just overwhelming fear that your life is about to end and you don't want it to. You know, you don't want to die, actually. Mm-hmm. And you certainly don't want to die as a result of a gunshot from somebody you don't even know the name of. That's mm-hmm. that's a real downer. Yeah. yeah. And you were like, you know, you're doing your own thing. You were about to go for a swim. And that was like the last thing you would have thought of. You You mentioned that. Your room had only two towels, so you thought someone from maintenance came to give you some more towels, and mm. that's the least you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Um, so you had always wanted to go to Bhutan. Like, Bhutan had always been yeah. a place that you wanted to go, but after that incident, you didn't go directly go to Bhutan. You went to Australia, you came to Hawaii, you even came to Texas, you came to all these places for yoga. So... Um, how was that experience, learning yoga in different parts of the world? Well, I guess, you know, the a lot of the book is about me exploring what it is to be fully human. Mm-hmm. No? And the first form of being human is to have this human body, right? Mm-hmm. And so, as I said, I needed to get trust back 
in my physical being and the physical world, you know, after Jakarta. That was the first layer that I needed to sort of sort out. And that's where yoga was so fantastic. And so I wasn't ready uh, at the beginning of that journey. I wasn't ready to go to Bhutan and look at Buddhism. I just needed to get like me here and now calmer and feeling stronger and just more sort of together, you know. So that's really what I did um, for for a long time there and then working with breathing practices, which are so important for the human and the human nervous system. And then eventually looking at the nature of mind and then really feeling that it was seemed hard in the West to find uh, uh, Buddhist teachers or people who are specialist in meditating, you know, and, and I'd always wanted to go to Bhutan in the Himalayas. And so, you know, then I went there and that's where, you know, the next kind of stage of my life really took off from. Yeah, but it wouldn't have been appropriate to go there and, you know, two years after uh, after Jakarta, I don't think I had to do other things first, like building up a building. You know, mm-hmm. I had to get my foundations right first. Mm-hmm. Mm. What was that feeling to be in, finally be in Bhutan? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. But when I, uh, when I went there, I, d- I didn't know I was going to meet you know, who the person that was going to become my teacher. I mean, I just thought it was an incredible place. I didn't realize that there was going to be this person there who was going to be my teacher. Obviously, I didn't know that. I just thought it was a lovely place with mountains and peacefulness and Buddhist culture. I didn't realize that I was actually going to have a really strong connection to the place. I I just thought I was there as a really, like, um, fascinated visitor, I, I didn't know the rest of my life was going to be linked to that country. Um, when you mention, you know, how you met your guru or your uh, Dalama, you say you were in a monastery and you just met him and you just felt like you had known him for a long time and that you had that instant connection. And it reminded me of a book, um, the autobiography of a yogi, where he talks mm. about how he met his guru. So, do you think every person has a guru or every person has that one person that they have that instant connection with? I mean, I can't remember that book. I'm sure it's very good. In terms of my lama, uh, I think I made it clear in the book that with my lama, it was his voice. When he spoke his voice, I thought I was hearing a voice that I knew, like, to the depths of my being. It was his voice. It wasn't particularly how he looked physically. It was his voice. And that's even the case now. You know, his voice is incredibly powerful to me. Um, I think that if you're lucky enough uh, and if the timing is right, it's it's very, very useful to find a spiritual guide who can help you in this life. And uh, you have to be open to that. Mm. And um, I just, I myself found it an essential part of my life and I hope if people wish for that also that they find it too yeah wow um what was like his reaction when you tried to find him again you know like you met him and you had that instant connection then you came back to London and you had this realization that I need to find him like I feel like there is more to the connection than you know than what it seems so what was his reaction when you like reached out to him Oh, Lama is very matter of fact. You know, I've never seen Lama sad or excited about anything. Really? You know? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. You know, so 
uh, he's just very matter of fact. Like, yes, I remember you. I would like to meet you. It's like that. You know, it's very, very calm, very unemotional, just very factual. You know, he's always very, very factual. I mean, I'm always like, uh, oh, Lama, it's fantastic to see you. I've got all these questions. And he's just like, yes, okay. You know, it's like, uh, it's, um, he, you know, he's very, it's very funny. He's just very unmoved at the same time as being the person who's helped me more than anyone in this world. He's totally kind of unmoved is the only way I can say it. It's definitely like visiting a mountain, you know. Wow. Would you want to be a Lama at one point in your life? I mean, the Lama, the title Lama is really got two aspects to it. First of all, it implies a certain level of understanding, a certain level of realization in the mind, right? Not a theoretical realization, but an actual realization, yeah? And the other aspect of Lama is that they are somebody who's capable of deeply helping others to reach their own potential, you know? I mean, both of those things sound pretty amazing to me. And, you know, I just see how, how the rest of my life goes. Uh, so uh, study hard and let's see. Um, so you have a son, Oscar, yeah. and mm. you are a nun as well. How is it yes. being a mother and a nun? Okay, I mean, that's that's a really important thing, I think, to bring into the equation. And that's why when my lama told me, to become a nun, I was very surprised. Wow. Yeah, because I had presumed, I mean, although I'd raised Oscar largely on my own and I'd never married, um, I still was very surprised that he wished me to uh, give up lay life and, and put on robes. And uh, so, but he did, and it was his absolute instruction to me. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I did check with him. I said, you know, Lama, should I then, are you saying I should leave my son now, you know? And he said, no, no, because it's just going to cause him a lot of suffering. Who's going to look after him? Yeah. He said, you carry on, you know, you carry on until he's able to stand on his own two feet and it's fine, you know? Uh, I mean, in, in the Himalayan tradition, there are monastics, there are lay people, and there's every combination in between even, you know? And so um, it's not unheard of to do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'd say is that in the same way as I feel my experience within business has been very helpful, hmm. you know, to, to understand things, particularly when I talk to other people. My experience of having been a mother largely raising a child on my own is very helpful when I talk to other people because it gives me an insight into some of the difficulties and sufferings that they may have. So I feel my capacity to teach others is enhanced by my previous life experience very much. And, uh, you know, I'm always I'm always laughing, you know, with students like we have to look at the importance of patience. Right. As practitioners, patience. Mm-hmm. And I mean, anybody who's been a parent will tell you that there is no greater way to learn patience than by having to bring up a child, mm-hmm. you know. So I feel I really want to uh, feel that whatever life experience we have, we can bring it into our path as spiritual practitioners, you know, that it's not against what we're doing. In fact, it's the ground of our understanding. It, it would have been much easier for me, if you want an easy path, <laughs> yeah. 
it would have been much easier for me to just be a nun in some way, leave Oscar, enter a nunnery, boom, okay? Mm-hmm. Or it'd be much easier for me to not be a nun and just be a mother, right, who can drink a glass of wine in the evening when it's been really stressful and, you know, go out to a nightclub and have a dance or something like that. would be much easier. Both of those parts would have been much easier. Mm-hmm. Combining both is a lot, yeah. but I feel that it makes uh, both my capacity to be a mother and my capacity to be a nun greater. I honestly do. Wow. So you feel like we need to put effort to be effortless. You need to put hard work to have that understanding of both being a mother and also being a nun so you have a deeper understanding and eventually have a sense of compassion for people who are dealing in both scenarios it's a very essential you know if we want to help other beings right really help other beings like we were talking about empathy earlier on Mm -hmm. i mean having empathy for other beings is about being able to take your mind into their circumstances and imagine how it would be and therefore act wisely to help them. So all I'm saying is that all my life experiences, broad as they have been, I think allow me to develop empathy for others very well because I can empathize with what it is to be a mother who's juggling this and juggling that and the child is screaming and, you know, da 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 I can empathize with somebody who's got a really stressful boss and, you know, they're full of deadlines and they're in a competitive work environment. It makes my capacity to develop skills of empathy greater, I think. Mm-hmm. And you also, before when we were talking, uh, before I started recording, you said that um, struggle is our greatest gift and greatest teacher. Um, I think that uh, we we can experience a nice, peaceful life, but it's really in the moments when things become challenging that we really look at who we are and what skills we have to face those challenges, you know? So although it's very uh, difficult to go through challenges in our lives, um, they really are the place where we learn the most. Wow. Uh, so, and challenges definitely help us grow as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, without any without any doubt. And, I mean, there isn't a person in this life who won't go through a challenge mm-hmm. because uh, it's inevitable that every human will experience aging, you know, will experience uh, death of people around them. I mean, it sounds a bit morbid, but these, this is the reality. Not every aspect of a human life is totally uh, rosy. Mm-hmm. you know and um uh, so this is why it's wise to equip yourself with an understanding of of how you're going to deal with difficulty because then when it happens you'll be much more able to cope yeah and reading this book it was like a very courageous book and you know it was very real very honest and you were very authentic about your experiences and some and I'm I can imagine some of it must have been really really hard for you to write and taken so much courage what made you to decide to write this book yeah I mean I decided to write the book because of having founded a a charity for uh, special needs children in Bhutan and I felt very strongly that I had to do everything I could do to help these children and help the charity and that's why I wrote the book 
you know if i if i hadn't been wishing to help the charity i probably never would have written my story to be honest because there had to be a greater a greater need than just me telling my story mm-hmm. you know and the book sales of the book have already helped raise funds for the charity and so i'm absolutely thrilled with that because i was thinking with determination to help the charity uh to be honest it wasn't very difficult for me to write the book because i was just determined to help the charity so i just got on with it you know and it did take courage um but i just was very focused on helping the charity it uh, was the first thing in my mind so i didn't uh i didn't make it like a personal thing it reads like a very honest personal story but the motivation for writing it wasn't really personal to be honest what does your charity do Uh my charity uh is called Opening Your Heart to Bhutan and we work in rural areas and with children with special needs in very practical ways uh, like building uh, school classrooms and building wheelchair access points and very practical things on the ground in Bhutan medical and educational focused That's amazing um just wanted to ask some rapid fire questions sure uh what advice would you give to your 20 year old self oh my goodness i don't know i don't I'm not sure i would have listened to myself at that point uh it's you know it's okay i mean it's all right to have that 20 year old self it was all part of it i don't regret it i mean you know it's it was part of it it's okay Um, I mean she was very frantic she was very smart she was very running running here and there um that's all right I didn't it's okay in that I uh transformed into something else but I couldn't have transformed into something else without having had that stage but I wouldn't want to be in that stage for 30 years you know <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. want to get stuck there yeah. but it's very important that we have different life experiences and we can realize that we're not stuck you know that we can be that oh but then we can also be that you know the difficulty comes when we think we're just that and that's it and we define ourselves in this one way and feel it has to stay that way that that's not such a helpful way of thinking yeah and most people don't leave their 20 year old self in their 40s and 50s well i think they do um I think they do because physically we begin to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in the same way as our physical bodies are changing, you know, we have a great opportunity to develop our minds. Mm-hmm. That's 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 the point. And uh so I just hope people do that. You yeah. know, because it's um it's about becoming happy and it's about feeling fundamentally meaningful in this world in the time that we have here. True. I couldn't agree more. Um what is a question that people never ask you you wish they did? Oh, people ask me a lot of questions. I mean <laughs> People ask me a lot of questions. Uh Oh gosh, I don't think there is a question that somebody hasn't asked me. I mean, really they ask me a lot of questions all the time about Buddhism, about being a nun, about whether I can eat meat, about whether I miss having a boyfriend, about You know, uh I mean, wow, they ask me so many questions. I can't think of a question that somebody hasn't asked me. You'll have to think very hard to find <laughs> up a new question. I'm I'm curious, can you eat meat? 
Uh, I choose not to eat meat. Yeah, I choose not to. I have be, I haven't meat, meat, eaten meat for a long time, but that's also because I'm like a rubbish cook. I probably don't even know how to cook it, to be honest. It's, <laughs> it's an ethical decision, but it's also probably a decision of incompetence on my part. Yeah. Well, what, what was the hardest thing to leave when you decided to become a nun? Like one of the things that you enjoyed while not being a nun? Uh. I mean, it's not been very hard for me, I have to say. You know, I the power of my lama and his teaching and his instruction on me to become a nun, it was a very powerful thing. And I, it's not a situation that I struggled with. You know, I didn't sit there and think, oh, can I do this? Can I not do this? You know, oh, maybe I want a boyfriend again. Maybe I don't. I just wasn't in that situation. So I can honestly say I've been very lucky because for me it felt very easy to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess that, you know, a lot of people would maybe have a glass of wine at the end of the day to relax with, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, that's probably – yeah, I guess for the first two or three months, that's probably the thing I thought, oh, you know, that's not there. Apart from that, I mean, but none of the, those, those things are so temporary and unimportant compared to what what freedom I gained in my mind from becoming a, you know, becoming a nun. Wow. Yeah. I'm curious about your morning routine. How do you start your day? What do you do? Well, my day is not always the same. You know, because uh, it depends what I'm doing, what practices I'm doing, if I've got charity things to do, if I'm speaking to somebody in particular. Um, the the most constant parts of my day are probably, uh, you know, doing some uh, small prayers and offerings in my shrine mm. and always making a small prayer before eating any food. They would be constants in my life. Um, but I might be doing some meditation practice or at the moment I'm studying very hard a particular Tibetan text mm. about what it is to be a compassionate person so I'm sitting here studying a lot right now um, and uh, so I'm doing that you know as I describe in the book for about four years there I had to do these 440,000 practices and so having got, come through the end of that, you know, then my life was very, very uh, disciplined, many hours a day doing this, every day the same, every day the same, every day the same. But I've come through the end of that now. So now I'm doing more of a mixture of things, you know, sometimes teaching people, sometimes organizing things for the charity um, uh, and very much studying my Tibetan texts wow. now. The philosophy of of uh, Buddhism is uh, something I really I'm studying at the moment. Mm. And, I, and like you said, with charity finance, has really helped you to you know maintain the charity and understand the business aspect of it as well. Yeah, I think having been an analyst, you know, particularly when you're an analyst in the financial markets, you gain the confidence to ask questions and not take things on face value and really drill down. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to run charitable projects in the developing world, you need to have that kind of quite tough brain. And uh, because, you know, the uh, I'm the main person who brings money into the charity and I'm also the main person who oversees the projects, mm -hmm. I, I really hate to waste even one penny, you know. So uh, I keep a very tight handle on things. And I think if the 
uh, charity is going to be continue to be as successful and and efficient with the money that it gets. It has to be like that. So, uh, I mean, I have had meetings in Bhutan where, you know, I've been in my monastic robes and I've been meeting like an engineer and I've been going through these like plans for building walls, you know, with great detail. And you can see them thinking, hold on a minute here. You know, this is a Buddhist nun. What is she doing talking about, you know, the mixture of the cement and what costs what and where it's going to come from? What What is this? But I have to do it because I can't stand up as the founder of a charity and say, you know, you can trust me. These projects are working. They're important. And we're not wasting any money. I can't stand up and say that unless I've taken that approach. So for a moment there, you know, I kind of back analyzing numbers and figures. It's quite strange. <laughs> so I've, you know, in the course of running the charity, I mean, there's so many medical conditions that I've got some handle on now, so many engineering issues. I mean, you wouldn't believe it, you know. Uh, so I, I've got many sides to my abilities now. That's amazing. Where do you see the charity in the next five years? Oh, I, I don't know. I just go project by project, uh, assessing each project as I go, giving it proper time and attention, finishing it off, then I approach the next project. I'm not really thinking of five years ahead, to be honest. I just want to make sure what I'm doing now is is good and worthwhile and successful. Boom, that's it. I, I'm not thinking five years ahead. And you also met William and Kate, Prince William and Kate. How was that experience? Yes. That was slightly nerve-wracking, I'll be honest. You know, as a British person, like the royal family is quite a big deal and uh, it's not like you see them around on the streets. So when I had a chance to speak to both of them in person, yeah, I was quite nervous, to be honest. Uh, particularly Kate was very stunning. I mean, really stunning, which is a bit overwhelming, you know, when you meet somebody that stunning. And I had a very nice conversation with both of them and Prince William has a copy of the book. And, uh, yeah, it was really nice. He wanted to talk to me about the book also. And so I was just really honored to meet them. And um, it was just lovely. That was in Bhutan. You know, they were in Bhutan. So um, to see them there was really great. That's amazing. Um, so aside from your book, what are the three books you recommend to our listeners? Uh, yeah, besides my book, obviously. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it depends. You know, everybody needs to read different things. That's why teachings should be diverse so that different people need to hear different things, right? I mean, I think pretty much anything written by His Holiness the Dalai Lama is always going to be worth reading. Uh, he wrote an early book. When he first went to the States, he did some lectures there, and they were compiled in a book called Kindness, Clarity, and Insight. Personally, I think that's a very good book. I also think Sokni Wimpache's Open Heart, Open Mind is a good book. Um, and then, yeah, I then I, I you know, um, I'm going to say that I like Asterix and Obelix cartoon books. You know, uh, there's what I always read to my son. And they've got like a couple of characters in there who are really quirky uh, superheroes. And I think being a quirky superhero is always a good thing. Aww. I wanted to ask this, what was your son's reaction when you decided to be a nun? Oh, he was just fine with it, you know. And uh, he's grown up with me doing yoga and with Buddhas around the house. And so for him, like for many people, it was just a simple extension of what I'd always been. It was just more obvious. Yeah, he didn't bat an eyelid. I mean, he's great. Aww. So, 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, where can people find you and find your book? I think uh, in the States, you need to get the book through something called Book Depository, which okay. is online. In Europe, you can get it easily on Amazon. And there's an audio book, which I actually read the book out, you know, which I believe is is quite uh, quite powerful to hear me read my own story, if you can get hold of the audio book. And there's a website, which is simply www.emmaslay.com. And that will also link to the charity website. And I try to answer any emails personally. If anybody uh, contacts me, you know, I will answer any email personally. So if anybody wants to be in touch about the charity or about the book or they can't find the book or they can't find Bhutan on a map, then they just have to send me an email. <laughs> and I will put all the links in my show notes as well. And I highly, highly, highly recommend that you guys go out there and buy Thank the you. book. Yeah. I want to visit America. So lots of people have to buy the book. So I get an excuse to come over and meet everybody. Yes. Um, last question. What is your definition of courage? You know, courage comes in many forms. Sometimes courage is jumping. Sometimes courage is staying. Mm. Wow. It's profound. All right. Mm. Emma, thank you so much for your time. I My really, pleasure. really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, you guys. Thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to subscribe because every single week I will come up with awesome and epic interviews like this one. And do not forget to check out my website, limitlessgrid.com for show notes.